Welcome to Writers Forum, a weekly presentation of WRBHFM. I'm Sherry Alexander, and this week we're talking to Ethan Brown, author most recently of Murder in the Bayou, Who Killed the Women Known as the Jeff Davis Eight. Welcome to Writers Forum, Ethan. Thank you for having me. Well, we've visited you with you before. You've written several other books about it's been a while, so let's remind ourselves. You're, right. you're from New York originally? I'm from New York originally, um, although I should say um, I lived in Washington, D.C., so I'm sort of a native to D.C., uh, but moved to New York right after college, didn't even really go home, and spent most of my life from about 94 to 2006 in New York. And that's and then, when you came here. Exactly, and that right after Katrina... But we're glad to have you. Thank you. Glad to be here. And you you think of yourself, you describe yourself as an investigative journalist. I do. And you've written, you know, for many, um, New York Magazine, Rolling Stone, people that publish what we call long form uh, journalism. And this is your fourth book. Right. Your first book, um, Queens Reign Supreme, you kind of tied in the drug culture and hip-hop. That's right, exactly. And your second book, Snitch, um, you seem to to go for kind of dangerous kind of people. Right. I mean, this is radio, so people can't see you. I mean, you look pretty tough, but you're not a large guy. I'm not at all a tough person. But, you know. That's one of the secrets to my... To whatever success I have in any of this, I'm far from a tough person. Well, then the third book, <laughs> as we mentioned just before we started taping, um, people have not stopped talking about. I right. remember when you came in, it was called Shake the Devil Off, uh, a true story of the murder that rocked New Orleans. And this was a real unfortunate Iraqi vet uh, during Katrina. Right. Remind us. Yeah, so I, I'm sure folks remember, but it's worth a refresher because it was such a traumatic time for the city, 2006, right? So many folks weren't back home. And if they were, they were rebuilding, right? So it was, a, it was one of the darkest times, I think, in New Orleans history. And right in that moment, in October of 2006, uh, an Iraq war veteran who had gained some press fame during Katrina because he stayed in the French Quarter and was known as one of the holdouts, um, murdered, dismembered his girlfriend, and then jumped off the roof of the Omni Royal Hotel in the French Quarter, killing himself. And it got a huge amount of publicity. Oh, I mean, the, the publicity that it received was just remarkable. I was here, coincidentally right after it happened. Um, This is when I was thinking about moving here. And it was in the UK press. It was all over the international press. It was in the national press. It was a huge story. The fact is, he chopped her up. Correct. And then he put the parts in various places that looked like he might want to cook her. Correct. So I think that macabre aspect of it, but but you really explain PT 
PTSD, PTSD yes. you know, as, as a major factor in, in his going berserk. Right. So the hook for me in terms of looking at this for a book was I read many pieces about this case in the wake of the incident. And I remember reading, I think there were at least two front page Times Picayune pieces about it, which was remarkable. And I think in one of them, or perhaps both, they mentioned that uh, the Iraq War veteran, whose name was Zachary Bowen, um, had actually served in Iraq. Um, uh, the reporters, I believe, were not able to learn anything about his service. And that, to me, was the hook of this. There was so much press and just a sentence or two mention of the perpetrator's military history. So I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to try and piece together his military history as well, well as his social history that might explain why this happened? And I think a lot of people, I just reread the book oh, a great. couple okay. of weeks ago to refresh my memory. Mm -hmm. And... I forgot how much you focus on post-traumatic stress syndrome. And I think a lot of us that live here, you know, we can't help it. What do we remember? It was so grisly that he chopped her up. Right. And we forget the guy was a soldier. The guy really had post-traumatic stress. What are we doing for vets that come back Correct. like this? And let's and you know and and I was able to find out that he served not only in the Iraq War but he served in Kosovo, in that conflict, he had a major military history, um, and and um, in the Iraq War he was involved in the march to Baghdad. Um, it, you know in the very earliest moments of the war, so so yeah he had a pretty pretty fascinating military history, and I wanted to explore that in depth. Um, and I think sometimes folks thought that what I was trying to do was explain away what he did. No, I but, thought you were. Yeah. What I was showing. trying to do was simply explain it, yeah. not explain away, not justify, just explain. So. Well, it really um, enlightened people, I think. Um, okay. Now, as, as does the new book. Good. Now, the, the, the Jennings... Um, the Jeff Davis Eight. Mm -hmm. Who were these eight women? Okay. So the name of the book is Murder in the Bayou, Who Killed the Women Known as the Jeff Davis Eight, as you've mentioned. And that subtitle, the Jeff Davis Eight, who does that refer to? It refers to eight women from Jefferson Davis Parish, Louisiana. Now, Jefferson Davis Parish is a tiny parish, about 30,000 people. In all, up by Lake Charles. Exactly, that, uh, Lake Charles is in Calcasieu Parish. Calcasieu Parish is the neighboring parish of Jeff Davis. It's a much larger parish. It's a parish with a uh, with much larger industry and business. Um, Jeff Davis is very small and with not a lot of industry and business. So these eight women were from Jeff Davis Parish. They were from the parish seat, which is called Jennings. Jennings itself is tiny. It's about 10,000 people in the entire town. And even more interestingly, all eight of the women were not only from Jennings, 
they were from one part of Jennings called South Jennings. That's literally across the railroad tracks. And it's the wrong side of the tracks. It's it's not only the wrong side of the tracks. You will hear, and I've even heard it post-publication, folks uh, from the north side who are the sort of elites in the town very clearly delineate, you know, those are the people on that side of town kind of thing. Well, and unlike many small southern towns in other states, the wrong side of the tracks is pretty much African-American. Correct. This wasn't necessarily the dividing line. These were troubled girls. A couple of them were African-American, but it wasn't their race. Uh, They were poor. Um, Some of them had mental problems. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think you're bringing up some interesting points. So South Jennings is fairly mixed racially. Um, There is, there are, I'm sorry, there are a few streets that are predominantly African-American. They're sort of a cluster area for, for black folks on the South Side. But generally speaking, the South Side is mixed. The defining factor of the South Side is that it's poor, very poor. So, yes, uh, six of the women uh, in this eight were white and two were African-American. And they were all, you use the term, sex workers. Right. So... Um, the phrase sex workers is now sort of, or sex work is the sort of preferred phrase over prostitution. Um, Because I think it it simply delineates that this is the kind of work that they were engaged in. Um, And I think prostitution has all sorts of bad connotations to it. Um, with, With these eight, though, I think... And, and this is very hard to understand um, for folks not familiar with this sort of milieu. It, it, it's not um, sex work that's uh, lucrative or expensive or, you know, uh, anything like that. It's, 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 it's survival work, exactly. That's exactly what it is. And often it's a trade sort of scenario where it's, and this happened in this parish constantly, trading sex to get out of jail, trading sex with a with a deputy at the jail to get out of jail. Well, that to me is the heart of your story: right. is the uh, corruption right. of the police and their involvement in in these <clears throat> with these women most of whom or several of whom were police informants. Correct. That's right. So Um, Everybody was involved with the drug trade. Right. And many people in your book actually charged the cops with, some of the cops with possibly being involved in the drug trade themselves. Correct. That's right. So, So the women would typically... Um, uh, provide information about other people on the streets in exchange for anything from money to, uh, hey, you know, we'll just let these charges go sort of thing. What made you decide to write this story? Um, 
So there's a long history to it <laughs> that I can try to explain quickly. Um, after Shake the Devil Off was published in 2009, I had reached a point where I was tired of the publishing industry and decided to take a break. I had befriended in 2005 a retired FBI agent who worked as a private investigator. He worked on the case uh, on which Queen's Reign Supreme was based. So we'd been friends for years, much older man than me. Up in New York. Up in New York. We remained in contact, though, um, for years after I left New York. And one of the things that I sort of gained from our friendship was uh, an understanding of how investigative work works and a sense that perhaps this is something that I might be good at. So when Shake the Devil Off was published, I was tired of the publishing industry, and I thought, you know, I might explore uh, jobs in investigation. Uh, by so, then you were living down here. And, oh, yeah, I'd been here for years by then in 2009. And I happened upon a staff investigator job listing for a law office in downtown New Orleans that handled capital murder cases only. I applied for it, didn't think I would get it, ended up getting it, and was extremely fortunate to work in that office. Um, my, Did you have to uh, go to school or take a test or anything? No, you know, they typically looked for people with backgrounds that were very different than mine. Someone who might have gone to law school, right? Or someone... Or a cop. Yeah, although in this... Cops are not particularly helpful in this area. <laughs> it's a very sensitive sort of investigative kind of subset here in, in, in the death penalty world. So, um, yeah, my, my background is certainly not typical at all of what they were looking for, but I was hired anyway. And I was fortunate to work for... Uh, an attorney, the director of the office, who was, or is, he's still there, uh, uh, unbelievably talented um, and, and a hugely inspiring person um, to me, remains so. Um, and uh, I also happen to be very lucky in that the cases that I worked there were just phenomenal cases. They were actually historic cases um, in Louisiana. So I got a lot, a lot of experience, and I feel broadened my investigative skills in a huge way. Um, in about 2011, 2012, I began to think about going into private practice to do this, uh, this meaning investigative work. And I thought, you know, I should engage a writing project. And, and when I say A, I, that really means singular writing project. And I had read about the Jeff Davis aid case in the New York Times. Campbell Robertson, a reporter at the Times who happens to live in New Orleans right now, uh, wrote a Jeff Davis aid piece that I thought was interesting. I then uh, went out to Jeff Davis Parish uh, for about a week. No book in mind, no writing assignment, and just met people out there and thought, the case was really interesting. Um, I pitched it to GQ magazine and was very fortunate. Again, uh, my editor at GQ 
had come from the New York Times. He was spectacularly talented. And we spent about two years working on this together, on and off. Um, he got a job at Medium, which at the time was publishing a lot of very ambitious long-form journalism. This is an online publication. Yes, it's an online publication. And they were publishing very ambitious long-form journalism. And, and in fact, later they would actually win national magazine awards for the stuff they were doing. Um, uh, my boss, I'm sorry, my editor got a, a job over there. He took the piece about the Jeff Davis state with him and a long form piece about the Jeff Davis state that I'd written was published in January of 2014 at the exact moment that True Detective season one premiered <laughs> on, talk H about that on HBO. <laughs> a lot of people yeah. conflated. I mean, it got conflated in my mind when I started to read your book. Right. I said, wait, this is Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> right. You know, it was kind of similar, you know, background people being murdered and very, you know, I yes. thought it was a fabulous it, series. But, yes, I, I'm a huge True Detective fan. Um, but he did not base it on... Nick Pizzolatto, the creator of True Detective, has said that he did not base it on his... I'm sorry, he did not base uh, season one True Detective on this case. Um, and, you know, I have no reason to doubt that. He's been incredibly kind and generous about my work. When the Medium piece was published, he praised it publicly. And that was a major uh, boost to me personally and to the piece. Um, but, you know, there are, you know, all sorts of similarities between this case and that fictional series, obviously. It's a book about, I'm sorry, it's a it's a show about unsolved homicides, right? It's a show um, about institutional corruption. In rural... In southwest Louisiana, Louisiana the yeah. same area. Yeah. Um, it takes... True Detective takes place in Erath, Louisiana, which is just, you know, down the way from Jeff Davis. So I'm picturing the opening with the oil and everything. Yeah, no, it, it, it's remarkably similar. And, and what I've said when I'm asked about this is that, you know, Nick Pizzolatto grew up in Calcasieu Parish which is next to Jeff Davis. And he lived this. So, of course, it's going to uh, spill over into his art. Now, you credit a great deal of your um, successful information to records requests. and That's right. I think I mentioned I was Sherry Sunshine for a long time. I started an organization oh, okay. in Louisiana called the Louisiana Coalition on Open Government. And nice. I helped people like you get access to records. We, we lasted about 10 years. So I'm a big fan of that kind of research. Well, if you're a big fan of that kind of research, <laughs> you'll love this book. I did. <laughs> yeah, because it, it's almost entirely built upon public records. It's amazing us. how much you can get from the public records. Especially now, in Louisiana. Folks should know that. Louisiana has a very good public records act. Yeah, you really have to fight sometimes, though. Cause yes, we, you do. A lot of people. And you said kind of toward the end, when you're, after your article had come out, suddenly you were getting redacted. Yes, <laughs> yes. So, so, you know, I learned how to use the Public Records Act uh, from my experience at the law office that I mentioned. That's where I learned how to do this. Um, and when I started working on this, um, nobody was paying attention, meaning nobody who I was requesting records from was paying attention. 
So I do records requests to the Jeff Davis Parish DA's office, for example, or the sheriff or the Jennings PD. And I would get very quick responses and a ton of records. And, you know, there was really no friction. It was a very seamless process. And post the medium piece, obviously, that was very different. Now, <clears throat> we, we don't have time in a 30-minute in a interview mm -hmm. to go into each of the eight, what happened, how they mm -hmm. were related. But we can say you, you actually have some theories that mm -hmm. you put in these and some of the people that you think were involved, you right. hypothesized, you know, who might have done what to whom, mm -hmm. um, some of these girls, what they may have witnessed, what they may have right. been involved in. It's a very complicated case. Yes. And you do help us a, a good bit by putting at the beginning and at the end, um, I guess you'd call them charts. Right. With the Jeff Davis eight, who was key figures, who key suspects, law enforcement. Correct. And even other victims that may have been part of the situation, even though they weren't officially one of these eight girls. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's helpful, particularly in a, in a small space, to, to, to just sort of lay out a couple of theories. Um, so one theory that was pushed by law enforcement um, w was that this was that was that this could be a serial killer, meaning a single serial killer, a single killer or a single perpetrator. I don't believe that's the case at all. And in fact, in two of the cases, they had cases that fell apart. I believe those two cases, um, particularly the first one, um, they had good stuff in those cases. That, and it's unclear to me why those two cases fell apart. And it's worth noting that those two cases have multiple people involved. <coughs> have you been um, threatened? Well, first of all, your physical safety. Have you been threatened? Do you, you said you never spent the night in Jefferson Parish. Right. And so, Jeff, no, Jeff Davis I mean, Parish. I've received a lot of threats uh, throughout the process of this. Um, so many that it would really be hard to even you know, recall all of them. Um, the, they're basically threats of the kind, though, that are, you know, someone conveys something to me that they claim they were told, right? So it's like, you know, I was told you're not going to live to see the publication of your book or things like things of that nature. What about since the book has come out with your theories? Have people threatened you with you know, with libel or anything like that? No, I haven't been threatened. And, and my sense is, and, and I'm not surprised to see this happen, is that the power structure out there is simply hoping that this goes away. Um, and there's a history, a very long history, of that actually happening. Well, one of the uh, key places that you mention and, and excuse me, the penultimate chapter, you talk about, I mean, it sounds it sounds like a caricature, but a yes. place called the Boudreaux Inn, right. which those of us in Louisiana, you know, we know all these Boudreaux jokes about the case. Exactly. It's the most cliched sort of name, right? But that's the real name of but this hotel. But that's the real motel. name. Yeah, so the Boudreaux Inn is a now-shuttered motel. 
It was an operation out there from 99-ish to 2008. It was a hub, not the hub, a hub of sex trafficking and, and drugs uh, in Jeff Davis Parish. And the milieu of the Jeff Davis state, um, this was a key place for them. So I, through a lot of public records work, was able to find out that the Boudreaux Inn, one of its proprietors, was a field representative for Congressman Charles Bustani. But we don't really get to that till the end. I mean, you talk about Big G, right. but then at the end— That's his nickname, right. Yeah. At the end, the penultimate chapter, you say who he was mm-hmm. and that he was this field representative for Bustani. Mm-hmm. So in when we're taping this, it's just before the election. Right. That's what's getting a lot of attention. That's right. Because he, this guy worked for Bustani. Yes, it, this aspect of the story is getting a lot of attention. Um, I should add that, you know, Bustani fired the field rep basically upon publication of the book. And I think what's happened, unfortunately, is two things. One, this part of the case has gotten too much attention. Two, because Bustani fired the field representative so quickly, the Boudreaux-in part of the story has now been sort of cast aside, right? Because I, I think what the press thinks is, oh, well, well, he fired him and story's over, right? But I don't think the story's over. I, I think that, you know, um, this motel is such a huge part of this case that I don't think that simply firing the field representative sort of ties it up in a bow, right? And it doesn't do anything yeah. except for Bustani, but it doesn't do anything about um, justice. It, what would be your dream, you know, well, to come out of your book? When you write a book like this and yeah. spend years and years of your life? That, that's a great question. I've thought about this a lot, particularly in light of the fact that uh, in New Orleans, we have federal consent decrees, right? Federal oversight on the jail, on the police department, as a result of the kind of misconduct that appears uh, uh, out in Jefferson Davis Parish. So at one point I was thinking, wouldn't it be great if there was a federal consent decree on the sheriff's office out there or the police department out there? But I've come to believe that the consent decrees don't do that much because I see what it does in New Orleans, and I don't think it does that much. So I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think a consent decree would be a step. Um, I think that, uh, you know, obviously some kind of prosecutions of those who were involved with this would be a step. I think that the approach to this, however, should not be as a murder case, but as a civil rights case. Because so the it, feds. Yeah, because because well, it, it has is, to be the feds. The it, state can't. Right, because it's so steeped in law enforcement misconduct, yeah. and law enforcement misconduct is a you know it, you know is prosecutable federally. Well, it's a fascinating book, and as you point out, it's it's um, being very well received. You're getting a lot of publicity yeah. um, with this one. Um, just to cite one source, John Barrett, who is now a New Orleanian. Yes, he is. Who were a little nervous. What is he going to be writing about us? 
But he says, Ethan Brown's daring and dangerous expose uncovers a murky inferno of violence and corruption in South Louisiana, where it's hard to tell the good guys from the bad and the brutal murders of eight prostitutes go unpunished, though not necessarily unsolved. Well, you've been listening to Writers Forum, and we want to thank our guest this week, Ethan Brown. Thank you. Author most recently of Murder in the Bayou. Thank you I'm so Sherry much. Alexander for WRBH.